you're listening to B2B Revenue Acceleration, a podcast dedicated to helping software executives stay on the cutting edge of sales and marketing in their industry. Let's get into the show. Hi, welcome to B2B Revenue Acceleration. My name is Aurélien Mottier, and I'm here today with Enrique Moniz de Aragao, VP and General Manager EMEA at G2. Are you, how are you doing today, Enrique? I'm very good, Aurélien. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. That's a pleasure. That's a pleasure. So today we will be talking about a very, very, very top topic for most of our clients, which is scaling a business in Europe. But before we go into the conversation, could you please tell us a little bit more about yourself, Enrique, as well as uh, your role at G2? And I would be surprised if people don't know what G2 does, but I think you should also cover it just in case to what you do as a organization. Yeah. (laughs) Fantastic. No, it's great to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Um, So yeah, I'm originally from Brazil and I built most of my tech career working primarily for US companies in a variety of roles based in Europe. Um, In my current role at G2 as general manager um, for EMEA, I basically joined March of last year, 2019. So just coming up to 18 months now uh, to open up our first European office. And for those who don't know G2, we are a business software review website in its simplest form. Uh, where people go to reach a research software before they buy. But obviously, there's a bit, a bit more to it than that. We, we publish 15,000 uh, reports a quarter, so uh, every quarter. Uh, and we have over a million uh, reviews that have been verified by, from real people using real software. And, and we basically, we add value um, and make money by helping marketing, sales, marketing and sales teams and tech companies uh, connect with more than 5 million buyers a month that come to G2. So that's been my journey for the last 18 months. Like the companies, uh, Series C, venture-backed. Our founders um, have sold two companies prior. We now have five global offices. And yeah, our, our ambition is to be like the trip advisor for software or the glass door for software. That, that's, that's good. I mean, we, we, uh, I would encourage anyone to go and check our reviews on G2, which I believe excellent. <laughs> so that's really good. But, but to get into the topic, Enrique, uh, you, you've been uh, you've been aiding the, the G2 expansion in Europe for the last 18 months, pretty much as you as you mentioned. 18 interesting months. I think the last the last eight nine months must have been uh, quite uh, quite overwhelming for you as well. But what I would like to understand is if you could tell us a little bit more about this journey and then kind of taking the, the US concept of G2 and and a concept is definitely getting some traction uh, at mm-hmm. least what we can see from our from our customers in the US. People are taking it very seriously in the US. And, and how do you bring it in Europe to, to probably what I would, I would have expected to be a less mature market to, to what you are doing and, and to that extent, maybe a little bit less welcoming. So, so can you tell us a little bit more about that, that journey that you went through, discuss about growth, that expansion phase and your outlook on it now, 18 months later? Yeah. So look, it's not the first time that I've been in a position where I'm bringing something that perhaps has more traction more adoption uh, and more market share in the US into Europe. And what's interesting is that when I did this last time, I did it within this umbrella of a big company called Salesforce.com, bringing a recently acquired business that had 90% of its customers based in the US into Europe. And a lot of it isn't different. I think that perhaps European buyers have been misserved, underserved by stereotypes, 
predominantly stereotypes that, you know, cloud adoption is years behind the US and we're more backwards and we take longer to adopt stuff. I don't think that's true. I think that European buyers are some of the most well-educated, savvy buyers in the world. And that really what we found ourselves in is like this cycle of we're constantly bringing stuff from the US into Europe. So it's naturally, it's going to take time to take hold. But yeah, it was an interesting decision for us to do it. We decided to bring the business to Europe basically, I think, a few months after the Brexit vote, right? So we, we made that decision in the middle of a lot of business uncertainty. You know, the, the funny thing is that in, in technology, I think most people that have been building tech companies, you know, we're used to uncertainty and we're used to having to deal with uncertainty. So yeah, it wasn't the, the time where everyone would have thought, hey, it's the ideal time to be expanding into Europe. And equally, uh, we did that. And then obviously we had uh, probably about, you know, I joined in March, we built the team, we start ramping up the team. Um, so there's a big challenge on wrapping up a new team and then a big challenge as well of building brand awareness. And I think that just as we were feeling fully ramped and hey, we've arrived, um, we had COVID hit. And, and that was, again, a, a moment of stop, uh, analyze, replan. Uh, and I think that's just a cycle that's going to go on and on and on every year that something's going to happen. But yeah, um, back to your question, Aurelia, I, I think that, yeah, Europeans, they're always hungry for new tech. Uh, I think that the challenges that you have in a big company is, uh, you know, is no different to what we're doing now with G2. Uh, and that, um, especially with, with, with COVID, I think, you know, it's, it's been a big shock. But after that, I think that technology has experienced a renaissance uh, this year. I think it's one of, the, one of the few areas of the economy where people are feeling safe uh, and looked after professionally and personally as if they work in tech. So I think we have as well, like a big responsibility to honor that as we scale businesses. Yeah, no, no I agree with you. And I think one question that I'd like to ask you, which is maybe more specific to the actual intrinsic nature of, the, of the, the, the European territory. You know, you always have the German saying, yeah, in Germany, everything is different. You've got the English saying it's different from France. The French are like, no, 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 we are very specific. If you're not French, you can sell to us. People think that if... You are not German, you can't sell in Germany. If you don't take a French person for a long lunch, you can't sell them something, et cetera, et cetera. There is lots of cliche. And despite the fact that we are quite small pockets of territories in Europe, everybody likes to be very independent. What, what are your views on that? You know, do you think that they are actually that different people? Because I'm, I know that a German would probably be more inclined to use G2 and more technically. You need to probably wow them technically. Well, in the US, it's more a story that will interest people. In, in, the, in Germany, it's more, okay, are you going to plug? How does it work technically? But I'd like to get your thoughts on that because I think, well, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. It's, it doesn't matter what I think. I want to know what you think. <laughs> Look, um, let me speak first from like personal experience, right? So the other time that I was doing this, we were rolling out a, a SaaS product that had broad appeal across industries and was pretty much ready for prime time in enterprise as well as um, mid-market and SMB, but the market just wasn't very much aware of it. Um, so the, the distribution model for us very much relied on having field-based sales teams in country, typical like B2B SaaS sale where, you know, long sales cycles, workshops, multiple stakeholders. And I have to say, yeah, I do think that there are there is a huge value in being in touch with how people like to buy. And I do think that, yeah, we, know we celebrate our diversity in Europe 
and that translates into the way in which we do business. So, you know, with, with that stint, you know, I was actually building teams and I was, you know, building teams of French people in France and German people in Germany. And we weren't trying to understand different people in a different way. We're just trying to reciprocate how they'd like to do business. Now, fast forward to G2, I can tell you that our entire team is based in the UK and UK business is not even 30% uh, of our share of, um, of business, right? Uh, and I think the fundamental difference there is not necessarily that we have, we, which we do have a multilingual, multinational team based out of the UK. I don't think that's the case. I think it's the fact that we're not selling field-based anymore. Sure. And, um, you know, I only sell into technology companies and our team only sells and markets to technology companies. And in Europe, there aren't that many enterprise. A lot of it is mid-market and, and smaller businesses who are very happy to do business remotely. So yeah, I think that uh, there are differences, but I think that how you're going to market is, is key. Uh, but I have to say, like starting with English speaking languages and, and countries that are happy to do business in English is, is definitely something that you should like put top of your list when you're expanding into Europe. But I agree, yeah, stereotypes are not helpful, but the way to get around them is to don't guess, just like build a diverse team. And that's what I've always sought to do. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think, you know, the, the, the UK territory is an interesting one to get started because I speak about it a lot with, with clients or even we have this conversation in podcast a lot, maybe not absolutely everyone, but a good 80, 90% of technology startup would land in the UK first. And I do believe that the, the UK prospects, no matter who they are, if, it's, if you're selling MarkTech or if you're selling, you know, finance solution or, or infrastructure or cybersecurity, these guys are overwhelmed with people, you know, going to them saying, I've got the best thing since sliced bread, basically. And, and I think that they kind of build some sort of cynicism and they're quite cynical as prospect. And, and if you can get under their skin and actually get them interested, and if you can be successful in the UK, I strongly believe that you can be successful anywhere else in the world. Because I do agree with the first statement you make. I think the prospect over in Europe, despite some of the things that I'm hearing sometimes are extremely well-educated about what's going on. They are very, again, cynical and to the point as to what they want and what they think. And, and it's great to do business with people like that because you don't waste time. You know, they tell you what it is and they tell you what they want, which is wonderful. But yeah. I would like, to, um, I would like to, to move a little bit the conversation towards uh, your past experience and, uh, and, and G2. So, you know, uh, in, in the build-up of, um, of, of this podcast, you, you discuss with my team about the fact that you work with companies like Accenture, Salesforce. You mentioned Ac uh, Salesforce a little bit earlier on. And obviously, you are G2, which is, a, a, what I would say, a bit more of a startup slash scale-up type of, of organization. What sort of differences have you perceived or seen in terms of culture from an Accenture, a Salesforce big machine versus you know, the, the startup scale-up environment? Hmm. I get asked that a lot. I get asked that, especially when talking to people, you know, seeking mentorship or making big career decisions. I think, look, no two big businesses are the same. No two small or medium-sized businesses are the same. I think, you know, culture and values are unique to businesses. I think culture is really the wrong lens through which to compare companies that are so different in scale as well. You know, like a, you know, the thing about culture with a big company is that like team culture matters more than the company culture, right? So we've all heard the sayings like people don't leave a company, they leave a manager, right? Uh, people leave teams, right? So even within Accenture, you know, 
you could talk to a hundred people, Accenture's got, I don't know, 200,000 people globally. You can talk to a hundred people and you're a hundred different things about what the culture is like at that company. Because they're telling you their experience with their manager or with their teams, right? Similarly with Salesforce and then similarly with G2, I think it doesn't matter how great you feel the, com the company culture is. It's, it's, I think the best thing to look at is like the values of the company and how those relate to you. And um, I do think in bigger companies though, like your ability as you scale to like keep that team culture alive becomes harder, right? So I'll give you some examples, you know, in a big company, you, know, you want to do right by one of your team members um, and you might want to reward them with a spot bonus or, or, or do something to right a wrong. You know, in a small company, that's quick. You can do that quick. And in a big company, it will take you three months to get all the approvals. And by the time you get the approvals, you know, that person thinks you don't care and they're talking to you know, your competitors and looking to the company. Anything can happen, right? You get a lot more infighting and issues around you know, territory allocation, especially in sales, like splits on global, you know, global deals, all that kind of stuff. So a big company will provide you more obstacles in terms of building an environment that is supportive uh, and that is rewarding in a lot of ways. But I never chose to work for a big company, right? And despite the fact that I've had the opportunity to do so, I ended up in big companies by virtue of acquisitions. And I think that if you're in that situation, you've got to embrace it because you stand to learn so much. Yeah. You know, I had the best sales training of my career at Accenture. Uh, and I also had the world-class sales leadership education at Salesforce. And if you spend your entire career on the other side, you can just startups, you will, I guarantee you, especially as a fast-growing startup, you'll get left behind because the company will outgrow you. Right. So there's never the right time to do it, but if you're given the opportunity, especially by virtue of an acquisition, I wouldn't push it away. And I've seen a lot of people, you know, a week, a month, two months after an acquisition say, ah, I'm kicking the bucket. I'm done. Like, this is not for me. So I do advise people against that because if, if all you've ever known is big corporate, then, uh, or all you've ever done is startup, then you won't be able to do a scale up. Right. Yeah. If you want to do a scale up, you need to know both sides of the equation. And that's why I'm, I'm like really fortunate about the position we're in with G2 because. You know, we've got, we've raised over $100 million. We've got 500 people in, in three different continents. And we're starting to pull in a lot of the big corporate stuff that we've, that our leadership team have learned over the years. And also all of our, you know, um, all of the fun, all of the grittiness, all of the, the hustle that comes with startups. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, but you really are a startup guy, aren't you? <laughs> I think you like it, which is good. I mean, I'm, I'm the same. I, I like the, I like the, I like when it's, um, I like when you are innovating, you, it's fast paced. You don't have to wait for stuff to be approved. You can get on with trying things when you want to try them, when the idea is exciting, not three months later, when you eventually get approval and you kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit deflating. I think sometimes when things don't happen quickly enough, but not all large organizations are like that. We, we have some relatively large clients who are extremely, extremely flexible and adaptable. Yeah. And but I think people are very quick to like bash big corporate, right? Yeah. And to highlight all the stuff that, I'm sorry to point fingers, that, that Aurelian, that you've just mentioned, Yeah. right? But actually, one of the reasons why I felt some of the teams that I've had the privilege of leading and startups and scale-ups have been as successful as they have is because of a lot of the big corporate frameworks, processes, scalability initiatives that we've brought from our time at big corporates. Um, and, you know, you don't need deep pockets to do great work. And uh, if you bring in people that have been there and done that, that can be a huge competitive advantage, especially for companies that are just, you know, 
going beyond the 10 million, going from the 10 to 20 and then from the 20 to 50. I mean, that's when stuff, the wheels really start to fall off. And you've got two options, right? You bring in somebody who's done big corporate for 25 years of their careers and they are completely going to clash with the organization. Yeah. Or, or, you, or, or, you, or you, you listen to some crazy people like me who have done like big corporate a few times, you know, two or three years here and there, uh, and are willing to come and try, you know, bringing some of that into the business. And, and I think that that's what really tends to work best. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I agree with you. So um, coming back to G2 and, and coming back to the start in Europe, where did you actually start? What was the chicken and the egg? Did you get to get the customer first, marketing first, recruiting first? What, what's, what would be your recommended? I mean, I don't know. I don't think there is a blueprint, step-by-step sales playbook of how do you expand your company in Europe. But what's the... What would be the first thing that you would advise our audience if anyone was to listen to us, I don't know, an Israeli company, a, a US company looking at Europe, they may be getting their second road of investment and want to go. Obviously, they need to recruit the right person on the ground, but once they've got the right individual, what, what do you think is first? What's the right sequence? Well, it's actually a topic I reflect a lot on because, not because of what we're doing as a team here at G2, but also what we do uh, in terms of how we service our customers, we're helping you know, US businesses grow into Europe or European businesses that want to go global. And so I think about that a lot. And I think that, I mean, if you're a CEO or CRO of a, a US business who's interested in how to crack Europe and, and you're doing it for revenue purposes, right? Because some people do it for R&D purposes. I think some of the stuff that I always ask people to think about is like things like, number one, what level of brand awareness do you have in Europe? Right. Brand awareness is key because, you know, I found that, you know, even with a 20,000 person business like Salesforce uh, and a 500 person business like G2, it doesn't matter how big and well-known you think you are, you know, building trust and awareness in Europe, especially to that skeptical buyer that we were talking about, it will take time and it was going to take more effort than you think. So things to look at include like how much traffic, you know, do your, does your website already get from EMEA based people? You know, what levels of engagement do you get online from European prospects, buyers, how well do you rank uh, on search engines uh, if you were like searching in Europe versus searching, searching in the US, you know, like flip on a VPN and just see what the difference is, right? And use websites like G2, you know, rank yourself against your competitors by popularity, by satisfaction, market presence in the region. Most companies I speak to tend to be quite surprised, sometimes offended, uh, just at how unknown they are or they feel in the region. That's number one. And then the second one is obviously what existing revenue do you have? Because that's going to dictate how you staff your team. Like we didn't have more than like 20 or 30 customers in Europe um, at G2. And some companies that I've spoken to, so I know a few people who are doing a similar job for other US companies coming into Europe. You know, they're coming to Europe already with like 100 customers yeah. that have been serviced remotely. So it's very easy for you to sort of staff a team based on customer success and account managers. For us at G2, it was very much acquisition driven. It's like, hey, guys, you know, G2 is here. This is what we do. This is how we can help you grow. But if you have no customers and no revenue, the first step is to hire one or two people max. And, and if you're already past that, say, Series B funding, you should have like, some local customers that you've supported remotely, and then you can build out customer support, customer uh, success. But you should, have, you should be able to justify some non-quota carrying roles because I think that's really key to scaling right? Uh, especially if you're looking at scaling revenue rather than just sales, because with revenue, you start to think about how you look after your customers. 
How do you make sure they succeed and they stay with you and they spend more with you? So you've got to make those investments in non-quality hiring roles. And then lastly, resist the urge to go into multiple market, markets and multiple segments, yeah. right? Um, what's your sweet spot is what I always ask. You know, what are you known for? And they go, oh, we're known for mid-market, but now we're enterprise. Like, no, but what's your sweet spot? All right. And so if it's mid-market, don't assume that because you have nailed enterprise in the US that it's going to transfer easily over into Europe. Because uh, it won't. Like when I did that at Salesforce, it took us 18 months. We already had like the world's largest enterprise companies using our, our specific piece of software. And it took us 18 months to get that same traction in enterprise in Europe. So I, 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 resist, I tell them resist the urge to go wide um, and in multiple markets. And, and most companies start with the UK, right? And most of the talent is here. A lot of non-UK talents. I mean, look at this call, right? You've got a Brazilian and a Frenchman speaking um, in the suburbs of London over Zoom. Um, there's a lot of diverse talent. So UK tends to be the first port of call. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. And then finally, you know, being a startup, uh, and I don't know, you know, because sometimes we see some startup is, you, you mentioned the, the level of, uh, of, of uh, investment that you receive at G2. And we, we, have, uh, we have had the chance to work with startups that have been extremely well-founded uh, over the years. And sometimes we look at it and people are like, oh, yeah, well, you work with an Oracle or you work with an IBM or you work with you know, Microsoft and, and Salesforce. My God, those must be massive clients, great clients. But in fact, you know, sometimes it's a startup that could invest more money with us. But the, the question I've got for you is that you know, the, the, the usual rule of thumb is that when, when a startup comes into Europe, and start in the European market, there is always limitation in terms of the budget, marketing budget that can be allocated to those, to those organizations. What are your recommendations in getting the most of every single marketing dollar when you get into Europe, when, when you start in Europe? What, was the, well, what would be the activities that you think are the most important or predominant for success and to scale? Um, well, first of all, I have to say, having done the job of bringing a product to Europe, at a big company like Salesforce, I did feel at times that it had less resources than doing it at G2. Because don't underestimate how bureaucracy and just like a big company is investing in so many different pots, right? The only big advantage we had was the brand awareness and you know, you show up at an event, the biggest booth has got your company logo on, like all of that's great. So the big shift really, I would say, is when you're doing a startup or scale up, bringing that into Europe, uh, if you are the leader of that business unit, you will have a lot more flexibility and say into how you use the budget that is available. And you won't have to hopefully answer to many people in terms of why you think that's what should be done. On the flip side, you're not going to have you know, endless marketing budget to throw around every event and sponsorship that presents itself. So how do you make the best of your budgets? Well, I'd say, first of all, as I said earlier, don't try and be everything to everyone right? And, and really just focus on nailing one market or one segment before moving on to the next. That will significantly help you focus uh, your budget. But if you are going to be spending you know, financial and human capital on acquiring customers, okay, stop wasting your time and your ad dollars on companies that are not in the market. You know, today's buyer is, as we've said, the most educated, proactive, yeah. and skeptical buyer uh, that we have ever seen. And COVID has uh, intensified that for us um, because they have no choice but to do all their research online now. And they don't trust anyone, right? They don't trust anyone but themselves, their peers, and people like them. So just because they are your ideal customer profile doesn't mean they're interested, right? 
think about that for a second. And how many outreaches do you get on a daily, weekly basis because you seem to fit the ideal customer profile for something that you're not in the market for right now and that you don't need, right? So do yourself and your budget a favor is what I would say and invest in technology that allows you to understand what these activities that they are doing online say about their readiness to buy. And that will allow your budget to go much further. Um, so that's my top tip for uh, marketing yep. budgets. Um, but I think, I think we also have an obsession with acquiring new customers. And the reality is that the key to sustainable long-term revenue growth is very much in delighting your existing customers. And I see a lot of companies coming to Europe on this like acquisition frenzy. And we all know that the average time it takes to expand revenue in an existing customer is at least half of that um, that it takes to acquire a new customer. Yeah. Right? And at a third of the cost. So really get to know your growth economics uh, for your existing business. You know, focus on things like net revenue retention rather than just new logo acquisition. And um, you know, aim for you know, what we aim for when we're looking at our plans is uh, we aim to spend no more than $1 for every $1 of net new ACV. Makes right? sense. Uh, and we try and keep to that ratio because this is a sweet spot, sweet spot to like sustainable overall revenue growth. Makes perfect sense. Thanks for that, Enrique. Well, it was great to chat with you today and thank you so much for your insight. Well, when we get to the to this stage of the, the podcast, we always, uh, or the session, we always ask our guests, uh, what's the best way to get in touch with them? So we've got a fair amount of, um, of marketing folks who are uh, following the podcast and hopefully listening to this, this episode. They should speak to G2. They should speak to you. They should, well, someone in your team to understand how they can increase their, their, their profile and, and, you know, the awareness around their brand and, and, and maximize, maximize the, the, the reviews and maximize their happy customers, get them to speak, get them to, to spread the good word. So all in all, what is the best way to get in, in, in front of you or to speak with you, to engage with you, Enrique? Hey, look, I, I just appreciate the opportunity to come here and share some ideas. Every time I have these kind of conversations, uh, something new arises as you reflect and there is no cookie cutter approach to anything in life, right? And, and I'm an avid learner myself. I spend most of my free time listening to podcasts like these. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm quite active on LinkedIn. So please go on LinkedIn, connect with me, uh, engage and share ideas. I'm always looking for opportunities to learn as well about the space that I'm in. And um, if you're interested in G2, just go to g2.com and uh, contact us on there. Um, and if you haven't yet claimed your, if you're in tech, you haven't claimed your profile on g2.com, you can quickly claim your profile, update your details and uh, get started as well. That's wonderful. Well, many thanks once again, Enrique. It was absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Operatics has redefined the meaning of revenue generation for technology companies worldwide. While the traditional concepts of building and managing inside sales teams in-house has existed for many years, companies are struggling with a lack of focus, agility, and scale required in today's fast and complex world of enterprise technology sales. See how Operatics can help your company accelerate pipeline at operatics.net. You've been listening to B2B Revenue Acceleration. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.